Since its creation in 1974, the Chesham and Amersham constituency has been a safe Conservative stronghold. In that time, the party has never won a majority smaller than 10,000, and in 2019, they won 55% of the vote, 16,000 more than their closest competitors. All this meant that the Lib Dems winning yesterday's by-election was quite the upset. Green, Sarah Louise, Liberal Democrats, 21,517 votes. I do hereby declare that Green Sarah Louise of the Liberal Democrat Party is duly elected. This Conservative Party has taken people across our country for granted for far too long. We will continue the work of holding this government to account for letting COVID rip through the care homes. We will speak up for the three million people excluded from financial support throughout the pandemic. And we will challenge Boris Johnson to be far more ambitious in tackling climate change, supporting our frontline workers and backing our small businesses. The Liberal Democrats will ensure that they will be held accountable and they will be scrutinised. That was Sarah Green, the constituency's new MP, criticising the Tories for taking voters for granted. And the results do suggest a desire to punish the governing party. Let's take a look at the numbers. The Lib Dems won 57% in the constituency, so a really big win. It wasn't close. And that added 30 percentage points to the results just to years ago. The Conservatives are on 36% or won 36%. That was down 20 points. You can see a massive swing there. The Labour vote also declining, but the big story here is that swing from the Tories to the Lib Dems. The Lib Dems now have an 8,000 majority. It's a result the Lib Dem leader, Ed Davey, said would send a political shockwave through the country. Well, I think this will send a shockwave through British politics. Uh, Liberal Democrats have had good wins in the past, but this is our best ever by-election victory. And if it was repeated across the South, literally dozens of Conservative seats would fall to the Liberal Democrats. People talked about the red wall in the North, but forgotten about the blue wall in the South. And that's going to come tumbling down if this result is, is uh, mimicked across, across this country. So you heard there a very pleased Ed Davey talking about a blue wall in the South. Now, the idea here is that the blue wall is the flip side of the red wall. The red wall, that's traditionally Labour voting constituencies who voted Brexit and now are falling to the Conservatives. The idea is that there could be you know, different seats in a different part of the country here in the, in the South of England that would have traditionally been real big Tory strongholds, affluent voters who voted Remain, who are now at risk of leaving the party, either to the Lib Dems or to Labour. This result was obviously given the Lib Dems lots of confidence that if that blue wall does fall, it will fall to them. So he is there suggesting this is this is significant. This is a harbinger of things to come. There is this whole constituency in the country, you know, in the broader sense, constituency in the country who traditionally voted Conservative and now for various reasons are going to go to the Lib Dems. This could be repeated in a general election and you could see the Lib Dems sweep across the South. That's, of course, not the only explanation of what happened yesterday. So another big issue in the election was local issues. 
Um, so this includes HS2, the Lib Dems locally campaigned against high-speed rail two. That goes through the constituency. It so happens that the Lib Dems support it on a national level, but they campaigned on that. They also campaigned on planning reforms, um, which the Lib Dems say would allow more homes to be built on the green belt and voters rebelled against that. We could then see this as a victory for nimbyism, not necessarily particularly progressive people who don't want high-speed rail, which is going to be, I think, necessary for a for a climate change-proof future, and um, who aren't particularly keen on more houses being built in their area, even though we have a housing shortage. So it could be these local issues and not necessarily issues with the, which the Lib Dems will be able to take advantage of when it comes to a national election instead of one fought on those local issues. It is also the case um, that governing parties losing by-elections is just the norm in British politics. And perhaps we shouldn't read very much into this at all. I want to show you a graph now from the Institute for Government. Now, this shows that in every parliament since 1945, the government have, on average, received a significantly reduced vote share in by-elections. Um, it's also the case that the magnitude of this swing isn't particularly unexceptional. So the swing or, or the drop in the Conservative vote share in Cheshire and Amersham was 20 points. And we can see from this graph that actually that was the average drop in vote share for the Conservatives between 1992 and 1997. You might say, yes, but they lost the next general election. It was also um, the average vote share lost by Labour between 2001 and 2005. They obviously went on to win that next general election. Precedent then makes the Chesham and Amersham results seem normal, unexceptional, which is unlike Hartlepool, which has also been plotted, you can see there in the top right of this chart. That was I mean, almost unprecedented because the Conservatives added more than 20 points to their vote share as the governing party. That one really did buck a trend. Now, when it comes to saying, you know, oh, um, uh, this, this most recent by-election doesn't matter that much because this is a, a peculiar result. By-elections are always novel, unique. Someone pushing that line, unsurprisingly, was Boris Johnson, who, speaking today, didn't seem particularly concerned about the result. It's, it's a bit peculiar, a bit bizarre. Uh, to, uh, I, I, I won London twice. I think I was elected in Henley uh, twice. And, and uh, you know, we, just uh, last month, uh, we, uh, we, we, we had gains in Basildon and Maidstone and Basingstoke and uh, all, all over the place. So, you know, we are a great one nation party and we will continue with our mission uh, to unite and level up because that is the best way to deliver jobs, uh, prosperity across the whole country. Boris Johnson there seeming incredibly relaxed. I want to bring Owen Jones in now. We've got him in the digital room. Two big visions, or I suppose two big explanations of what happened last night. So one is that this is a, a real problem for the Conservatives. The Lib Dems are about to sweep through the blue wave in the, sorry, the, the, the blue wall in the south of England. The other is that this was a pretty unique one-off. It's a by-election. People were protesting against the government and voting for local reasons. Which one of those are you going for? I mean, look, the Lib Dems are, by tradition, the by-election kings, and people forget that because, as a political force, they were so crushed by their experience in coalition. But if there's one thing the Liberal Democrats have traditionally excelled at, it is, it is storming a by-election. And what they do is they often lay the foundations, and it is rumoured uh, that, for example, in this particular case, Cheryl Gillan, the former Conservative Member of Parliament, was ill for a while. The Lib Dems 
in his room and knew that and laid the foundations uh, for, for their victory. And what they tend to do is colonise local issues. They are hated as campaigners by both Labour and the Conservatives for very similar reasons, which is they're seen as very opportunistic, cynical campaigners. In some local elections, Lib Dems and one part of a constituency will campaign uh, in favour of something and then in the other part of the constituency or council area campaign against it. That's just what the Liberal Democrats uh, do. And obviously they did successfully colonise a local issue here. But we also know that there are economically right-wing reflecting their class interest, affluent homeowners, um, well-to-do, who are socially liberal, who don't like the direction the Conservative Party has taken. Um, and that's collided with a with a NIMBY-ish political, local political issue. Um, but I'd say a big warning, I mean, kind of for the Liberal Democrats, I suppose, which is uh, there's been lots of, you know, we, we saw this even after the 2015 coalition experience when, for example, they won and they defeated Zach Goldsmith in Richmond Park, the Lib Dems are back. And it always, it has tended to be a false start um, because uh, it, what tends to happen is Lib Dems win often by elections and then lose them at a general election. And we should remember that, and this is, I'm sure we're going to talk about this now, you do expect governments to get punched in the face in a by-election. That is kind of what happens. Opposition parties do better normally in by-elections than they do in general elections, as I think your graph just indicated uh, earlier. So actually, this should be normal politics. This is what you would expect. Would the Lib Dems probably keep the seat? I'd wager probably not, historically speaking, unless a realignment really is taking place. So I think, personally, I think this is an example of what an opposition party, particularly one that excels at by-elections, should do in a midterm scenario, which is what's just happened. Mm, I mean, I, I tend to agree with you on that one. So I'm going to go to another clip to, I suppose, push back with this idea that maybe this is a sign of broader sociological trends. Um, this was Dominic Grieve. He was a former Conservative MP, obviously a big um, Remainer, very anti-Boris Johnson. He spoke to the BBC this morning and he agreed with the Lib Dem leader that there is a Tory blue wall that might soon crumble. This has happened not just because of HS2 or, or because of Greenbelt issues, though doubtless that's played a part. It's because this is a pretty sophisticated electorate that knows what a fraudulent prospectus is. And they have a very low opinion of the prime minister and they consider him to be a charlatan. And this is, I think, quite a widespread view amongst a certain section of the electorate that has consistently voted Conservative all their lives because this is a deeply Conservative area with a small c. And that's the fundamental problem that the Conservative Party's got. Uh, it, they have a Prime Minister who appears to have an appeal to some sections of the electorate because he's optimistic, he's sunny, he's outgoing, uh, and towards another group who perhaps take life a little bit more seriously uh, he comes across extremely badly and it's got much, much worse. So an interesting argument there from Dominic Grieve. The undertone there I thought was a little bit of classism. He's sort of suggesting these are sophisticated voters, these wealthy voters in the South, who can see through Boris Johnson's buffoonery, not like the Northerners in the Red Wall who just like to see a sunny, optimistic guy speaking. Oh, did, did you have the same impression from that intervention from Dominic Greaves? 
Exactly, exactly that, to be honest. I mean, look, Dominic Grieve, firstly, wants his party back. He's not going to get his party back. Uh, so he's trying to use this as a, any politician would in his circumstances when his faction has been so comprehensively defeated within the Conservative Party's political leverage to try and use it to say, well, actually, the Conservatives thought that they had a cost-free uh, political strategy by winning the so-called red wall seats by pivoting towards kind of, you know, the the right wing populism, uh, which abandoned the austerity economics that I think Dominic Grieve actually was quite comfortable with, but he was quite comfortable with, he voted for it consistently, uh, that they could keep the red wall and keep their existing seats in the South. And Dominic Grieve and people are going, no, you can't, you're going to pay a price for that uh, in an effort, I think, to try and use that as in leverage internally. But obviously, there's classism there. I think there's a sense that uh, they, I think they see this, and it is far more complicated in terms of what's actually happening on the ground because the Tories are doing well amongst older homeowning white people in the north. Some of those are working class, some of them aren't, many of them are retired. But as far as people like Dominic Grieve are concerned, this is a kind of plebeian turn by the Conservatives that they have abandoned the genteel middle class conservatism of the Shires in favour of the rough, coarse, crude, blue-collar conservatism of the North. That isn't true. And obviously, the, the form of conservatism that Dominic Grieve and others uh, promoted was one of slash-and-burn economics, which devastated working-class communities. And I'm not saying that that's been entirely comprehensively abandoned by this government. They, they do turn on the taps very cynically, in those communities which they are seeking to win over or to kind of secure and consolidate their existing electoral coalition, the danger for, I'm afraid, for the Labour Party and for the left and the, the danger equally for Dominic Grieve is the Conservatives have every chance of consolidating their grip over the so-called Red Wall, northern ex-industrial areas where which disproportionately have an older white homeowning voters where younger people have disproportionately left and in a general election keeping those southern seats. I mean, just on that, I'd say, remember Joe Swinson went very hard, much to our chagrin, against Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party in the general election. And to one degree, that was actually completely irrational and an act of self-harm because by fueling the demonisation of Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, uh, all that did is help drive certain voters into the arms of the Conservatives. But the, the rational basis for what she was doing is trying to appeal to Conservative voters who were disillusioned with the Brexit turn, uh, but who were more scared of Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party. And I think the reality is, in a place like Chesham and Amersham, is a lot of those homeowning affluent voters who've plumped for the Lib Dems this time and quite annoyed about HS2 and don't really like Brexit and think Boris Johnson is probably a bit of a charlatan. I think if any vaguely progressive Labour Party, I mean, at the moment, they don't have any political vision of any description, but they will think to themselves, to be honest, any Labour Party in government might increase my taxes. And if I vote Lib Dem, I might get those people in power and they'll increase my taxes. So I'm just going to vote Conservative, even though I think Boris Johnson's a moron. And I think that's what's likely to happen. And I think probably Boris Johnson knows that. So I wouldn't expect him to now sort of see this and think, oh, God, now I've got to suddenly become 
uh, a, a liberal and and start speaking as if my main constituency is in in the south of England because I do feel I, I agree with you essentially. Once a general election comes along and it looks like a a fight between a conservative or a Labour led government, these people are going to pitch, or the majority of people in these affluent constituencies are probably going to pitch um, for people who they are pretty sure won't raise their taxes. Um, let's go on to our next story. Labour never expected to win in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election. However, the scale of their defeat has raised questions about the health of the party under Starmer's leadership. They won only 622 votes, which represents a 1.6% vote share. As you can see from the following chart, this was Labour's worst ever performance in the constituency. So you can see here, they've never done particularly well in the constituency and they have done very badly. Their previous low was 6% in 2010, their previous high 21% in 2017. Um, so historically, it looks very bad. However, speaking to Sky this morning, Jess Phillips suggested Labour's poor result needn't worry the party as this time it was the result of tactical voting. Why do you think that you didn't do better in the Cheshire and Amersham by-election? I mean, I don't think that anyone was necessarily expecting the result we got, but I think even fewer people would have been expecting uh, the Labour Party to, uh, to to take uh, Cheshire and Amersham. And I think that what's happened there is that voters aren't stupid. Um, often, I think, it, it, in public commentary, we, we, we talk about voters uh, in a manner as if they don't know what they're doing. And it seems very clear that the vote in Cheshire and Amersham was a vote against the government and the voters uh, decided that the best way to do that was to to all around the most likely winner and in this case it was the Lib Dems. It's a classic Lib Dem squeeze message. I, I beat the Lib Dems so I, I'm no stranger to it. Jess Phillips says some unreasonable things. That probably wasn't one of them. People are more likely to vote tactically in by-elections. That's because as we talked about you get to hit the government cost-free, risk-free. Also in a by-election you normally have the, the opposition parties campaigning a bit harder than they normally would in a general election. So we know that the Lib Dems were campaigning incredibly heavily in this constituency. Also, I want to show you one more graphic because we compared this vote to Labour's pre previous um, performance in that constituency. It's probably also just as good a comparison, potentially a better comparison, to look at Richmond Park in 2016. Then you can see, likewise, the Labour vote um, really fell as people realised it was a, a two-horse race. Um, so in, in this election, Christian Woolmar was the Labour candidate. He only got 1,515 votes, um, which was 3.6% of the vote, down 87 from previous. So again, we see that the Labour Party was squeezed, though it was to less of a significant degree than it was this time around. Owen Jones. What's your take here? Do you think that Jess Phillips is right that essentially this was just the result of tactical voting? Or do you think the fact it was so low that it only 622 people voted for the Labour Party suggests that there is also something else going on here? I think it's a bit from column A, a bit from column B, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, that is Labour never going to obviously be competitive in that seat in 2017, which, of course, the high, high watermark of Corbynism. Uh, Labour came second, but a distant second. This is true blue country. And realistically, 
only the Liberal Democrats have a good chance in a, in a constituency which is as safe a seat for the Conservatives as that particular one in the South. With that kind of social composition, clearly vast numbers of people who would prefer to vote for Labour if they had that choice voted for the Liberal Democrats because they knew that was the best possible way of getting rid of a Conservative Member of Parliament. But equally, the, the, the brutal reality is that there is no motivating reason for anyone to vote for the Labour Party in the year of our law 2021. Nothing. No reason at all. I don't know why people... I, don't, I vote Labour because, to the irritation sometimes of people on the left, I'm a Labourite of, 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 a, of a left persuasion. So I loyally go and vote for that. I don't know why other people are voting for the Labour Party at the moment. I don't know how you answer the question. I really want to vote for the Labour Party because... To stop the Tories, fine. But as we've seen in this particular case, people just concluded there was a different way of, of stopping that. People aren't voting for something. They're not. You don't vote for the Labour Party at the moment because you think, here's a great inspiring vision that resonates with me, which will transform the life of me, my family, my community, my country, uh, or indeed the world if we look at the climate emergency. Of course, no one's doing that. So, I mean, the fact that the Labour vote is essentially the same as the Labour membership in that, and I, I presume some Labour members vote for the Liberal Democrats, so it's not exactly a, a, an exact... Um, then di diagram there. Um, the, the the fact is, you know, the, the Labour Party's got the sort of vote you'd expect from the monster raving loony party, um, which is humiliating. You, you know, there have been many by-elections in the past where people have tactically voted for the Liberal Democrats, but the Labour Party still retain a core vote. No Labour core vote existed at all in this seat. It just vanished. It evaporated utterly. And, and I think that's the problem that sums up for the Labour Party. Normally, a political party, a main, one of the two major parties in any any significant constituency, when it's been when it's had a significant vote in the past, should have a die-hard. I'm going to vote for my party to the bitter end. I don't care what the stakes are, and that didn't exist in this constituency because there's nothing to drive people to vote for the Labour Party. But I do think it was overwhelmingly uh, tactical voting. What should worry the Labour Party is their excuse about a so-called vaccine uh, bounce for the government, meaning that they lost the last by-election in Hartlepool and have a very good chance of losing the next by-election in Batley and Spen is because of vaccine rollout. Well, if that's true, why is it hitting them and not the Liberal Democrats? The problem isn't so much Labour's vote share in this by-election, it's what it says about Keir Starmer's excuses about their vote share in by-elections, which they should have won. So in Hartlepool, obviously, Labour didn't lose because of tactical voting, because it was a two-horse race between Labour and the Conservatives. When Labour did lose, what were Keir Starmer's allies saying? They were saying, well, Boris Johnson um, is now essentially indestructible because we're amid a, a vaccine bounce. How could anyone, however good our leader was, possibly beat this man who has just delivered vaccines to the masses, right? And as you say, Owen, that argument doesn't stack up because why was Ed Davey able to do it, right? <laughs> People in this constituency also got vaccinated. But so, and, and actually more of them have been vaccinated now than they had been vaccinated when Hartlepool was, was coming along. So, so Keir Starmer really is going to struggle to find excuses for elections which do matter to the Labour Party when they lose them. Obviously, Hartlepool was won. Batley and Spen is coming up and we will see what happens then, whatever we think about what this says about Keir Starmer, it does seem that there is some disquiet within the Labour Party, including in Keir Starmer's top team. Kate Ferguson from The Sun today tweeted, 
Knives out for Keir after the Chesham and Amersham by-election disaster, hearing that supporters of Angela Rayner and Lisa Nandy quietly ringing round to sound out possible support if he goes. That claim has been disputed. Rachel Wimmer at the Huffington Post tweeted later, Labour source close to Angela Rayner and Lisa Nandy has called reports the two have been sounding out MPs about a leadership challenge. Absolute bollocks. Um, so claims and counterclaims there. What we do know, um, which I saw Owen Jones tweeting about before this show, is that Ben Nunn, who is Keir Starmer's Director of Communications, has, in the past hour or so, resigned. So there definitely is disquiet at the top of the team. It's not just a case of briefing and counter-briefing. Something is going on. Owen, can you enlighten us any more about what, what is happening at the top of the Labour Party right now? Well, the wheels are falling off. Um, what, I mean, I'd just be blunt about it. That's, that's very self-evident. Um, I think it's been quite an open secret that the Ben Nunn, the director, previous no longer the director of communication has not been happy in that in that in that role for a long time um and i think sources you know i think various people who 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 have a good grip of labor politics uh who who aren't necessarily on the left there was a consensus that they don't have a political strategy of any direction they came into the position they have thinking that by virtue of looking competent uh, Keir Starmer not having any baggage um, being a knight of the realm, no less, having run a state bureaucracy, uh, he could present himself as competent compared to his predecessor and competent in contrast to Boris Johnson. That was incinerated, that dividing line, uh, by the vaccine rollout because they didn't offer a dividing line based on vision or values. Uh, they were left with, with literally absolutely nothing to say, which is not a great position for directive communications to be, to be left in. I think what we're talking about in terms of the manoeuvrings, though, I think is important because I know sources close to Angela Rayner's team are very adamant that they're not telephoning people around. But I also know other people who are very adamant that people linked to Angela Rayner are ringing people. So there was, there was a conflict in understanding of what's happening in that particular case. You know, I think the issue with Angela Rayner is there are people close to Angela Rayner who do want her to stand for leader. And that I think there are others who don't at the moment and i think the, the the worry is that old adage the cliche he who wields the dagger never wears the crown if you overthrow your leader you generally do not or you never and there's not really a a, a direct a precedent for, for 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 then replacing them i mean take example michael heseltine michael heseltine mobilized in an attempt to overthrow margaret thatcher in the coup he didn't end up her replacement. John Major, who was her Chancellor of the Exchequer and loyal to Margaret Thatcher in that episode, he instead became the successor. So, it, you know, there's no easy route. I think the other issue I'd say is a big chunk of the right of the Labour Party, I, I think there's good reason to believe, are waiting to see what the result of the Unite General Secretary election is. Because the Uni Unite is the most influential trade union in the country, the most influential union within the Labour Party. And if Gerard Coyne, the right-wing candidate, wins, that will then be used to clamp down on democracy within the Labour Party and do all sorts of very, very, very terrifying bad things, but also to rewrite the leadership rules, probably a reversion to the Electoral College, for example. So you give a massive chunk of the votes weighted in favour of members of parliament. 
you change the nominations required to get a left winger on the ballot in the first place, um, and that would stop a left winger getting on the ballot paper. Um, the issue, I think, with Keir Starmer now is dead man walking, politically speaking. Um, you can't lose two by-elections and stay on as leader in, in the long term. I mean, it's he if he loses Batley and Sped, where I was earlier this week, we have to call for him to resign, no ifs, no buts. It's a ludicrous position to be in. I mean, just to be very clear about how just oppositions do not lose by-elections. That almost never happens. Before Hartlepool, that had happened twice in the last 50 years. You can't double the number of by-elections you have lost or an opposition has lost to the government in the last half century within the space of two months and credibly argue you have any chance whatsoever of staying in power. I went to Batley and Spen and what I saw were particularly Muslim Labour voters who are core Labour voters, very important point to make, by the way, because there's going to be a whole load of Islamophobic dog whistles, there already are, coming out of Batley and Spen, somehow suggesting that Muslim voters aren't legitimate voters, that this is a George Galloway factor, rah, 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 rah. In the last general election, an estimated, according to the latest poll, 86% of British Muslims voted for the Labour Party in this country. There's over 3 million Muslims in this country. In many seats, British Muslims have a big, big influence over which party becomes or wins that each each constituency. And they are furious, furious when you talk to them. They feel completely abandoned by their party. They want to teach Labour a lesson. They want to give Labour a punch in the nose. That's how the people I spoke to, they sounded just like Scottish Labour voters before them who spoke in just the same way. My father, my mother, my grandmother, my grandfather, Ever since our family first arrived here, we always voted for the Labour Party. For the first time, I'm not going to vote for the Labour Party, and I'm going to teach them a lesson. And I heard that from Scottish Labour voters. It was the same said by some voters in the so-called Red Wall as well. And the issue is, in Scotland, when they crossed that electoral rubicon, they didn't come back. Now, in Batley and Spen, George Galloway, who I think is a cynical opportunist, uh, to say the least, just very conservative a few weeks ago, uh, but nonetheless, he has cut through with his messages on things like Palestine. And, you know, when pundits say, oh, Palestine and, you know, for these are foreign policy niche issues that the average voter doesn't care about, apart from freaks and the Labour Party and all the rest of it. Well, they're wrong because you, everyone was talking about Palestine on the doorstep or a lot of people um, in Batley and Spen. The reason that so many British Muslims were more attracted to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party was his track record on fighting Islamophobia um, his stance on issues like uh, Palestine, but also Kashmir, for example, uh, and also the fact that around half of Muslims in this country live below the poverty line and Labour's domestic policies are more likely to resonate with them as a consequence. Um, and, that, that, you know, this idea that Keir Starmer's leadership had, which was the, the, the biggest, you know, this is what Peter Mandelson said about working class voters, allegedly. They have nowhere else to go. And they, that, they thought 2019 voters, whether they be Muslim, whether they be young voters, that's as, that's the floor. They're not going to leave Labour Party. They're not going to, you know, we, we don't need to listen to them anymore. We just have to go and go and chase these other voters and wave flags in a very patronising way in order to do so uh, without committing to a vision of what we're going to do with the country. And guess what? It's not one any of those voters on over, but it is losing the support of those voters uh, instead. So I think what's happening is Labour's electoral coalition is further collapsing under Keir Starmer's leadership. Uh, as things stand, things are looking very bad in Batley and Spenner for Labour. And privately, Labour councillors tell me that the seat is lost. They tell me on, on streets where 80 to 90% of local residents 
voted Labour in the last election. They're just telling canvassers to F off. Um, bitter opposition. Actually, the Labour candidate, uh, you know, Joe Cox's sister is actually very charismatic on the doorstep. She's obviously a very good campaigner. You know, there's no political vision being offered by the Labour Party. That's the issue. And it's that's cutting through. So I think what will happen after Batley and Spen is we on the left have to, if he loses Batley and Spen, Keir Starmer has to resign as leader of the Labour Party. And the left has to think very seriously about how we get some sort of candidate on the ballot paper in those circumstances. If people have left the Labour Party over the last few months, I would strongly recommend you join so that you will have a vote in any coming contest. Uh, it does underline how important the Unite General Secretary election is. That's why Steve Turner has to win. So for those of you who are angry that Howard Beckett's not in anymore after he withdrew to support Steve Turner, that is a politically very, very important um, uh, battlefield in terms of for the left in British society and within the Labour Party. Uh, but I think the right may hold their fire, or a lot of the parliamentary Labour Party, because they fear at the moment, until the leadership rules are changed, the left has a chance of clawing back some power, either with a candidate who's more amenable to the left or an outright left candidate. So I think they will hold fire, a lot of them. But his position will be untenable if he loses the battling spend by-election. He won't lead Labour into the next general election, in my view, if that happens. The issue is, will it happen a leadership contest when they rigged the rules to stop the left getting on? And that's a big, big problem for us. We are going to go now um, on to the latest developments in Unite. On previous shows, we've despaired at the fact that three left candidates entered the race to lead Unite the Union against only one candidate from the right. That risks splitting the left vote and handing a union with 1.4 million members, and which is the Labour Party's largest donor, to a candidate committed to rolling back any gains made by socialists over the past decade in Britain. On that front, we have some good news and some bad news. The good news is that two of the candidates have come to an agreement and one will be dropping out. Steve Turner and Howard Beckett have released a joint statement that included the following. Howard Beckett has decided he will support Steve Turner as Unite's next General Secretary. Both recognise the vision and strengths of their respective campaigns, and Steve Turner recognises the key manifesto commitments and energy generated by Howard's campaign. They will both work to implement a blended manifesto, taking the best ideas from both candidates when Steve Turner becomes General Secretary. It goes on, Howard Beckett will campaign alongside Steve for the next two months to present a joint programme which includes greater support for workplace representatives, important new communications initiatives including Unite TV, upgraded education and training for members, an independent and progressive political voice and a new structure for the union reflecting the diversity of our nations and regions. Um, that's the good news. There were three candidates. Two of them are now uniting behind Steve Turner. Um, much credit to Howard Beckett for doing so. The bad news is that the other left candidate, Sharon Graham, has refused to come to any deal. So in response to the statement from Turner and Beckett, Graham said, the announcement of the Turner-Beckett ticket, along with the Gerard Coyne candidacy, now completes the Westminster Brigade. I am the workplace candidate and will be standing to ensure the voice of Unite members is heard. 
So there's there's still going to be two left candidates and one right wing candidate. I don't know, Owen. Do you do you have any insight into why this has happened? I think lots of people watching this will be completely despairing that we are going into another union election, one that really matters both for the union movement and for the Labour Party, and the left couldn't get it together to unite behind a single candidate. Why, when Howard Beckett was willing to fall behind Steve Turner, could Steve Turner and 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 Graham Sharon Graham not come to any kind of any kind of agreement here? Sharon Graham's coming from a different place because uh, what we saw with Howard Beckett is he put his greatest emphasis on political strategy, which was to uh, that Unite should have a very, very, very firm line on Keir Starmer's leadership, including potentially pulling the plug. Um, he, that's to be fair to him. That wasn't all. He, for example, talked about increasing the strike ballot and the 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 strike ballot fund, for example. Uh, Sharon Graham is more of what you would describe as a syndicalist. She's not somebody who has a particular interest in Unite's relationship with the Labour Party. She has, you know, she's known as a good organiser. That's her, you know, she has a very dedicated following of people around her from the organising department of Unite. Um, and that's her big thing. It's about, you know, you know, not having a service model of trade unionism, focusing organising, which a lot of us watching would would strongly agree with that she's not somebody who who really has a has a strong position on 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 vis-a-vis unites you know unite and 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 the labor party um, and and the political left i suppose um so i think you know it was very very difficult negotiations which took place over the, over the last few days which was very difficult in itself between howard beckett's team and uh, Steve Turner's team, but Sharon Graham's team are adamant they're not going to stand down. Uh, one of the main arguments they're pushing is that she's a female candidate. It is, of course, true that the trade union movement, the majority of are women, um, and that isn't represented properly at all at the top of the trade union movement. There is, to be to be brutally honest, something of machismo, partly in some sections of the leaderships of the trade union movement. Um, we've seen what happened in GMB, which was one of the big um, trade unions uh, in the country, one of the big three, when their last general secretary, you know, was forced to resign in amidst a terrible scandal. Uh, so you can see, you know, that machismo is a big problem. But at the same time, what's likely to happen if this goes wrong, and there's a very good chance it will, is it won't be a woman leading Unite. It will be an extremely right-wing 1950s style trade union right winger Gerard Coyne, who is a left bashing, uh, you know, reactionary uh, of of a very very old school of uh, you know 90 as I say 1950s style, style bosses trade unionism who would completely trash the kind of whether it be unite in terms of organising workers in, in terms of having a militant edge with employers. Uh, as well as obviously working hand in glove with the leadership of the Labour Party to suppress Labour Party democracy and stitch up the leadership rules. So, you know, unfortunately, Sharon, you know, just Sharon Graham is just not on the same. She's not coming from the same position as Howard Beckett. It's not easy in the same way to appeal to her. Some might argue, by the way, she might end up taking votes off Gerard Coyne because some of Gerard Coyne's likely uh, people voting for him will be people going, well, I'm just fed up with Unite and the Labour Party going hand in hand and Unite should brought out and I don't want my money going on that. And Sharon Graham, her pitch could actually appeal to some of them. But I have put that to people and they did point out to me in the last Unite General Secretary election when, it's very important to make this point, 
Gerard Coyne got 10 times less nominations than Len McCluskey, but then ended up nearly winning. He came within four percentage points of winning. He got about 42% of the vote. And people then go, well, nominations mean nothing. Well, actually, what it shows is the right always outperformed the nominations. So Gerard Coyne, again, came last. But the right people who support his candidacy are less likely to turn up to trade union branch meetings. Um, and that's, the, I suppose, that's the danger now, which is because uh, they said to me, if you compare with what happened in 2017, we did have another syndicalist candidate, Allenson, who stood and he only got about 14% of the vote, but that was nearly enough for Gerald Coyne to win. That just getting that share of the vote was nearly enough. So the danger is Gerard, she, he may, she may take some off Gerald Coyne, but she's going to take some off Steve Turner too. I know Steve Turner's team are wargaming on the basis now that Shaman is not going to stand down and there's no evidence to suggest she will. I, I understand a letter is going to go in signed by women in the trade union movement urging her to do so. And that pressure does need to be exerted. But we're nearly at time. Monday's the absolute cutoff. That's when the statements are submitted. She, her, she's digging in. Um, and the danger, therefore, is, as things stand, you know, we saw what happened in unison. Two, uh, more than three left candidates stood. The right wing candidate won, even though they won a collectively a majority. And the danger is, again, with Sharon Graham, that she will take enough of both to allow Gerald Coyne still to come through the middle. That would be a catastrophe. And, and that's why, if there's any difference between now and 2017, back then, no one thought Lemon Kosky had any chance of losing. He had incumbency advantage as well. And they didn't mobilise as a consequence. Honestly, if you're on the left, this is do or die. This is a, a kind of, we're talking a generational defeat if this goes wrong. So... The left, if they want, you know, the unite, which is at the absolute centre of the left's infrastructure in British society, not just in the in the in the Labour Party, but class, the People's Assembly, UK and Cut, they were very much involved in supporting all these other movements. That will be a catastrophe that the left will struggle to recover from for a very long time. So I do think the left has to throw everything into this because Sharon Graham's standing means Gerard Coyne. If I was a betting man, I'd say he's going to win this. He's the favourite to win. And only if people throw everything into Steve Turner's campaign is there any chance of that's not happening. Owen Jones, thank you so much for coming on this evening. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, as ever, for watching Tisky Sour. We'll be back on Monday at 7pm for now. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.